Um, today is a special day, as most of you know. Most of the world is celebrating this particular day. Uh, well, well, the Christian world, apparently, is, is celebrating this day. But I want to take you back to the Word of God and what it has to say about this, uh, this thing we call the resurrection and what it has to do with us and how it affects us. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is probably one of my favourite passages about um, what the implications are about Jesus rising from the grave. And I want, to, want this message to be an encouragement to you this morning, and I hope it is. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we'll read from verses 1 to 20 this morning. The Apostle Paul tells us in this, uh, in this passage over here, he's written this, uh, this letter. He says, Moreover, brethren, he's speaking to the church, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I, uh, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that, he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen also seen of me also, as of one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles. I am not meet to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain. But I laboured more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. Therefore, whether it, whether it were I or they, so we preach, and so ye believed. Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching in vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, <clears throat> whom he raised not up. If so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's devote this uh, time to him. <clears throat> Father, we come before your throne this morning seeking to be taught of you. Father, we want to know what you would have us to learn today. And so we pray that our minds would be open, our hearts would be ready to receive that truth which you have for us. I pray for the work of the Holy Spirit in this place today, that he'd be moving within our hearts, that he'd be opening up our understanding, that our ears would be, would be there to hear and our eyes there to see. 
only that we might understand your truth so you might be glorified. Father, we pray for your blessing today. We thank you that this day we can celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and our Saviour, Jesus Christ, who went to a cross for us and rose again, defeating death. We thank you that he is our great shepherd. And as we look to him to lead us in this life, we all look to him one day to be with him as well. So bless us now as we seek to learn more of thy ways. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And today the majority of churches around the world are celebrating uh, this particular thing that is mostly referred to as Easter or Resurrection Day, except I think maybe for the Orthodox churches may be a little bit out because they use a slightly different calendar than we do. Um, but this day is essentially a celebration of the resurrection of Jesus from the grave. It doesn't matter really what you call it, the message is still the same. That some 2,000 years ago, uh, a very special man did something that no one else before or after has ever been able to do. And that is to defeat death and rise again. And as we're sitting here in this place in 2021, um, with all our technological advancements and everything that we have, we have electric cars, we have all these different things, we're splitting atoms and doing all these types of things. You know what? Death is still a certainty for, for mankind. Death is still a certainty for everyone. And this miracle that we celebrate today is still as miraculous as it ever has been. This is not some throwback to a, a, a primitive culture that, you know, that saw some technical, technological advancement and thought it was, you know, a miracle. No, no, no. This is the same miracle today as it was then because we can't do the same thing that he did. Despite our advancements, death is still a certainty. From the poorest person to the richest person in the world, doesn't matter who you are, death is still a certainty. Yet a humble carpenter who was raised in an obscure village, which was a Roman province 2,000 years ago, so in a time that you couldn't buy a Panadol for a headache, at a time when having a donkey was like having a Mercedes. Okay? This man, this humble carpenter, who didn't go to any great university, who wasn't, who wasn't uh, famous throughout all the world, no, 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 he was only known in his small little town, was taken by the Roman government and he was crucified and he was executed on a, uh, on a cross that was created for the worst of criminals and it was created like that so that you would be a public display in front of everyone of your crimes and the, the purpose of it was in that in going through such tremendous torture in a public way that you would be an example to everyone else not to do the same thing and yet here we have a man who had done no wrong to anyone else who was simply teaching the truth the bible says that he never sinned even once he was taken and crucified in that same way and on top of that he was humiliated as much as they possibly could by putting a crown of thorn thorns on his head by buffeting him by uh, spitting on him and they divided his clothes among them as well in a raffle so this man 
this humble carpenter was crucified on a cross and then had a, a spear thrust into his side as well to make sure that he was dead. Um, this man, who was put into a tomb with a massive rock at the front of it, was wrapped up in spices and, um, and, and cloths, wrapped up all around, managed on the third day to walk out of that tomb. And he didn't die again. You see, there are accounts in the Bible of people having been risen from the dead. Yeah? And he was the one who did it. But they all died again. But he doesn't die again. The Bible tells us that not only did he not die again, but he physically rose, and he, his resurrection was physical. He rose straight into heaven. The Bible says they're on a sitting up, they're on a mountain, a huge number of them that were witnesses of him after he rose from the grave. And the Bible says that while he was standing in the midst of them, they literally saw him rise up from the ground and disappear into the air. They literally saw him do that. And so there's, a, there's the account in the book of Acts that says that you know they were there and they're all going like that. And then an angel shows up and says, "What are you looking up in the sky for like that? What are you just, what are you gaping, just you know, just looking up in the sky? Imagine what they'd see. Can you imagine if, if you saw someone standing in front of you just rise up and then eventually disappear into the clouds? And the angel said, what are you looking up there for? Don't you know this, this man who you've seen go up like that is going to return the same way? He's going to come down one day. As he rose physically, he's going to come down physically. This man did something that we can still only dream about. Forget about I mean, those of you who watch, who like Marvel comics or Marvel movies or DC, you know, your, uh, your superheroes there, right? You know, they don't hold a candle to him. None of them can do what he did. None of them was, would be able to, for 30 plus years, be able to hold back the temptations of a, of a being we call the devil, who was hell-bent on getting him to sin. You know how some people say the devil made me do it? Well, most of that's not entirely true. Most 99% of the things we do that we fail in come from within us, okay? The devil doesn't necessarily get you to do much because you're already doing it. We already have the weakness already within us and we succumb to our own desires, okay? The Bible says we are fallen in our nature. That's why we need a saviour. But this man, can you imagine the concentration of attention that the devil would have had on him to sin his entire life. He would have not held back at all because he would have known that if he had gotten the Son of God to sin, that it was done. All he had to do was get him to sin once and then he could not become our Saviour. You see, it required, and the Old Testament required, a perfect spotless lamb to be a proper sacrifice. So if Jesus had a blemish, he was not suitable. But you know what's good news? The fact he rose from the grave tells us that he was perfect and that God accepted the actual sacrifice. And so Jesus becomes for us the Lamb of God who takes away our sin. I love the way the Apostle Peter preached this message to his fellow Israelites concerning Christ. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 23, just for a moment there with me. 
Acts chapter 2, verse 23, and when you begin to piece together the things that the Bible tells us about this man, who we know as Jesus Christ, you'll begin to understand who he is. Acts chapter 2, verse 23 and 24 says him, this is referring to Jesus, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye, and he's talking to his fellow Israelites, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Verse 24 says, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, Look at the end of this thing, because it was not possible that he should be holding it. Death couldn't hold him. You know why death couldn't hold him? Not only was he the son of God, so he couldn't be held by death, but he was perfect. You see, the Bible tells us that death comes as a result of sin. And we're all sinners by our very nature. We sin from when we're very young. From the moment we understand how to manipulate someone else, the moment we understand what's right and what's wrong, we, we are just at it day after day. We can't keep in track of our sins because our motives are always tainted by something else. You see, we struggle with our fallen nature, but Jesus, the Bible says, is the second Adam. You see, the first Adam was created without a sinful nature. He was, he was perfect. He was innocent before God. And so Jesus becomes the second Adam, and he was innocent before God. How many temptations did it take for Adam to fall? One. 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 Think about that for a moment. A perfect man, perfectly innocent, living in a perfect environment, and it just took one temptation for him to fall. I wonder how many temptations Jesus was given. Yet that is the amazing thing of it all. That he remained perfectly spotless to the end. He obeyed his father perfectly till the end. And it wasn't possible that death could hold him. This is not true for any other person in the history of mankind. Not before and not after. There is no one who will ever be born who can claim that death can't hold them. Because they are perfect. And this is the historical truth that Jesus rose again from the grave that distinguishes Christianity from every other religion or philosophy. Christianity is different from every other religion because of one main thing, Christ. Because of him. It's got nothing to do with all this stuff that people want to throw around. We, are, we have every reason to celebrate today, to remember what happened during those crucial three days. And despite what this world may think or believe, that truth is more sure than anything else that you'll put your trust and hope in. It's more sure than anything else that you can believe. That Christ, on that third day, walked out of a grave. Turn with me back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. Because this is the hope that we have, which distinguishes our faith. From mere religion. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 1 says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel 
Now that's the good news, which I preached unto you, which also you have received, and wherein ye stand. He's talking to the Corinthian church here. By which also ye are saved. <clears throat> if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you first of all that which also I received. How that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. You don't want to know what the gospel is, the good news? The good news is that Jesus died for our sins, that he was crucified for our sake. He shed his blood so that our sins might be forgiven, and he rose again on that third day. Our faith is firmly grounded in provable history. If you take away the history of Christianity, you've destroyed it. Did you know that? All the information that we, that we find in the Gospels here, all these different accounts, including the traditional, the, the traditions that are in, recorded in there, the events that occurred, the characters that are in there, including high priests and rulers and names that it gives, all verify that it's the truth, that it's a true historical record of what occurred. This is not mythology here. Like most religions are built on, mythology that you can't prove, where you see things that just are ridiculous in their claims. This is historical truth with names and dates and people and events which are all verifiable. This is the gospel message that Paul says that he received, that he passed into the Corinthian church. The gospel changes lives. It changes lives and eternities. It is the gospel which we will continue to declare without hesitation. This is the gospel message which we have received, which the Apostle Paul says he preached in, to the Corinthians 2,000 years ago, and we're still declaring the same message today. And just as the Corinthians were saved through this gospel, we're saved the same way. There is no difference between us and them. The power of God to save an individual and bring them to heaven has not changed or diminished over 2,000 years. The blood that Jesus shed that cleanses a person from their sins has not lost any of its power. It's still able to cleanse me from my sins and you from yours. Jesus is indeed, the Bible says, the same yesterday, today and forever. He does not change. He is our hope and the reason we can rejoice today is because of him. And if you're, you are in him, if you are in Christ today, you have every reason to rejoice. Because just as he was raised from the grave, the Bible says you will too. Look at verse 2 though, in 2 Corinthians 15. Sorry, 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 2, the one we just read just a few moments ago, says... By which ye are saved, so that message that we've received can save you, save your soul for an eternity. But he says, if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. Keep in memory, you know, unless you've believed in vain. What does that mean? Was it, was it, is there some sort of a chance this thing's not true? It says the Corinthian church had received the gospel and they were holding fast, they were standing in it. But imagine, can I ask you this morning, if you put your faith in Christ, can you imagine forgetting the gospel? Can you imagine that today? Can you imagine going through a time in your life where you just forget about it? And it doesn't mean anything to you. Is that possible for someone who's been saved? 
I would, I would say no, that there's zero chance that someone who has been changed and saved by the gospel of Christ can somehow get to a point where, you know what? Oh, I don't know. I don't know what that, I don't know. I don't remember it. It doesn't mean anything to me. There is no chance. I don't believe this is a possibility for you. I don't believe it's a possibility for anyone who has been changed by that gospel. And if that were a possibility, then Paul says that's what it means to believe in vain. And for a born-again believer, that is not even a remote possibility. But the tragedy that we have is that believing in vain is all too common today. That vain, for something to be vain according to the Bible, means the waste of time. Okay? Just think about that. So when, when the Bible says if you've believed in vain, you've believed in wasting your time. Okay? The tragedy of today, as it has been through most of the last 2,000 years, is that Jesus did not say that the majority of people would come to believe. In fact, he said that the road to destruction and the gate that leads to it is wide and the majority of people are going to go down that road. And he said the road and the gate that leads to life is very, very narrow. It doesn't mean that it's hard to find. No, no, no. It means that it's a lonely road. When you compare the number of people who will, are willing to put their soul into the hands of Christ and say, this is yours, I'm going to trust you to save me for all of eternity, that number is so small that it's compared to a, a one-lane walking path compared to a six-lane highway. And the six-lane highway is always full of people. You know why? Because people find it easier just to go with everyone else. It's comforting, isn't it? When you're surrounded by everyone else. Everyone else is going this way. But you know what? There's a little road, a little track down that way, and I have to leave this group and go over there. And I might have to do it myself. That's not, a, that's not an easy thing, is it? That's why Jesus says that not many will be saved. And that's the tragedy of this whole thing, because where are all these people going? The Bible says only two places that you can actually go after that exist on the other side. One is either with Christ, and that's in heaven, or a place where the devil is, is at, or the devil will be eventually. And that's a fiery lake. And the problem is that most people, like lemmings, are just following everyone else. And what they believe, and what's, what's extraordinary about the whole thing, is that their belief is vain. Their belief is vanity. You see, we're celebrating something that affects that should affect you personally. But the problem is that most people believe that they can receive this thing traditionally. Vain belief is acknowledging, even celebrating that Jesus rose again. There are millions upon millions of people who are celebrating today that Jesus rose again from the from the grave. But vain belief may be acknowledging or even celebrating that Jesus rose again from the grave, but never understanding and receiving what it means for you personally. Yes, you may have a corporate association with that message. I call myself a Christian. Right? 
There are plenty of people who call themselves Christians that have no fruits to show for what they call themselves. In other words, there is no um, evidence of what they say they believe. So that's like a corporate association, like, like belonging to a country. You know, I'm an Australian, you see. <laughs> now, what's an Australian? Is an Australian someone who's born here, someone who migrates here and becomes an Australian, or, or what does it mean to be an Australian? I think we're still asking that question, to be honest with you. And it seems to be changing every, every couple of weeks. And people think that Christianity is the same. That I'm a Christian simply because the people that I grew up with, my family, my friends, the church I went to when I was growing up, the school I went to maybe is a Christian school, is a Christian church, is a Christian family. Maybe they, they associate with a denomination. I'm a Baptist. <laughs> better an independent Baptist. It's another a fundamental independent Baptist. That's that's gonna get you know, that's gonna get me to heaven every day of the week. Just calling yourself an independent Baptist is gonna get you to heaven, right? No. Whether you're Catholic, Anglican, whether you're Presbyterian, whether it doesn't matter which denomination you say you're from, whether you're Greek Orthodox or Armenian Orthodox, or whatever it is, you know what? Belonging to a church will not get you into heaven. Your family can't get you into heaven. Your church can't get you into heaven. Your denomination won't get you into heaven. Your associations won't get you into heaven. You don't know, only personal faith in Jesus Christ will get you into heaven. And that is something that very few people do in their lives. Only Jesus can save you. And all else can be forgotten. All else is not the gospel. If you think that you're going to heaven because somehow you were baptised as a baby and that, that initiated you into the church, I've got some bad news for you. It didn't save you. If you think you're living a moral life now and compared to you know other people, you're going to be good enough to get into heaven by your efforts, I've got some other bad news for you. The Bible says your efforts can't get you there either. There's only one thing that can get you to heaven, and that's putting your faith in what Jesus did for you on a cross 2,000 years ago to believe that he rose again from the grave, that he is the Son of God, and you put your full trust in him to save your soul and allow him to enter into your life. That's what will save you. So that gospel, Paul says, for I delivered, in verse 3, for I delivered unto you, First of all, that which also which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Jesus indeed died for our sins. He was our substitute. You see, it should have been me on the cross. It should have been me that suffered and died. It should have been me that went to hell. Yet he did it. He died for our sins. And it was for that reason that he said he came to the earth. 
He came in order to save us from the penalty of our own sin. That is breaking God's laws. That means we don't have to suffer the sentence of hell. He's also freed us from the power of sin over us as well. The Bible says if you are born again, God's given you a new nature, you are no longer bound in a prison by your own fallen nature. You have the ability to actually understand the truth of God and to live it. You are no longer a prisoner. You are no longer a slave to your own sin. The Bible says if Jesus saves you, if you know the truth, and the truth will set you free. He frees us from the penalty of sin. He frees us from the power of sin. And because he rose again from the grave, he's freed us from the, the fear of death. Ever wondered why so many Christians were thrown to lions, burnt alive at stakes? You know, when, when, uh, when uh, Nero was around, he had a wonderful, uh, wonderful uh, uh, pastime. He loved to light the streets up, not with, you know, with, with candles. He loved to light up the streets with Christians. That was such a wonderful hobby that he had. And he thought to himself, you know what, I'm going to do something good for my country. I'm going to take these Christians, if they profess Christianity and they profess faith in Christ, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to tie them up to a pole and I'm going to cover them with tar and then I'm going to light them up. And line the streets up with them in Rome. So all the Romans can see what terrible people these Christians are. And he threw them to lions. They were slaughtered en masse. They wondered why those Christians went to their deaths singing. There's so many accounts, if you, if you care to read it. They went to their deaths singing or praying to God while they went to their deaths. Why? Because they had no fear of death. Death doesn't mean anything anymore to us. We should have no fear of it because the one who we've put our trust in, who now holds us in the palm of his hand, he beat death for us. He conquered it. We now have no more fear of death. The rest of the world has fear of dying. They may not admit it. They may, they may not tell you that they're afraid to die, but, but deep down they're trying to avoid even thinking about it or talking about it. There is a fear of death in every person because they don't know what's on the other side. But in order to receive these things, the Bible says you need to receive them not just in your head, but in your heart. When I say heart, I mean that they, they're true for you personally. If that's not, if the gospel isn't true for you personally, if you haven't come to the point in your life that you believe that Jesus died for your sins, and that he knows your name and that he's come knocking on your door and that you put your faith in him to save you personally, you are not saved this morning. And you need to be saved. You need to come to that realisation. And I can't do it for you. No one else can do it for you, but only you can make that choice and take that step. So why can we have such confidence about approaching death? Death means nothing to us. Death is like me stepping off this thing to, to, to somewhere else. That's what death is to us. You know what? Death is even better for us. The Apostle Paul says, I'm, I'm torn between hanging around here and being with you guys and helping you guys or dying and going to be with the Lord. That's what he was torn, torn, he was torn between. Now, most people aren't torn 
in life aren't torn between hanging around with their with their family and friends and dying and being with God. No, 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 no. But this is what it's like to be a Christian. We want to be with God. You want to be with the one who loves you more than any anything else in the world or anyone else in the world. He's the one you want to be with. And he should be the absolute first love of your life and mine. That what we do for him should make everything else pale into insignificance. Our attention should be on him. Our focus, our devotion, our time, our efforts should all revolve around him. Not ourselves, not our careers, not our work, not money, not houses, not your family, not your spouse, not your kids, not anything else should come before the one who gave his life for you. He should be the first love in your life and in mine because he gave us eternal life. Look at verse 5. How can we have such confidence in this message? Well, have a look at what it says. In 1 Corinthians 15, 5, it says, And that he was seen of Cephas. So this is after he's died, after he's resurrected, he was seen of Cephas. Who's Cephas? Well, Cephas is Peter. Peter the Apostle, the one who denied it three times even. The one who we're talking about this morning. He was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. That's the, the disciples. After that, he was seen of above 500 brethren at once of whom the greater part remain under this present, but some have fallen asleep. That means they've died. And that he was seen of, and after that he was seen of James and then all of the apostles. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is an historically provable event. This is not just done behind closed doors or in secret. Neither was this letter that Paul has written to the Corinthians written a few years ago. This was written 2,000 years ago and not long after the event happened. And you know what he says? He says there, he confidently tells everyone who, who's reading this letter or listening to this letter, he's saying, you know what? Are you not sure? You know what? There are still, there are 500 people who saw him alive after that. This is not some, this is not something, oh, oh so-and-so so said that he saw someone he was hallucinating. And this is 500 people who saw him. And Paul says, and if you want to find out, most of them are still alive. And if you're not sure about this thing, let me tell you, most of them are living. Some of them have died. But you know what Paul's saying? You're not sure? Go and talk to them. Go and hunt them out. This is not just a few people here. This is hundreds of people that have a testimony that they saw him after. They ate with him. They were with him. They spoke with him. They saw him physically. They touched him. You know, any lawyer... Any good lawyer, there are plenty of bad lawyers out there, but any good lawyer <laughs> who has 500 witnesses to bring him to a court case has an open and shut case. If you have 500 witnesses who say, I saw this occur, you know what? That's a, that's a complete case. There is no... There's no shadow of doubt with those many witnesses who are willing to testify about that. And so Paul is, all, is inviting people to say, well, listen, they're still alive. They're still living. If you want to go and hunt them out, you can go and search for them. And then he says in verse 8, he says, And last of all, he was seen of me also, as of one born out of due time, for I am the least of the apostles uh, that am not meet, I'm not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. That's exactly what he did. He started off persecuting, hunting Christians down. 
dragging them bound back to Jerusalem so they could, they could uh, be tried for believing in Jesus. But he says in verse 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace, which was bestowed, that means to be given something that he didn't deserve in the first place, was bestowed upon me, was not in vain. But I laboured more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. So finally, Paul himself says, I've seen him. I've spoken with him. I encountered him. And that occurred on the road to Damascus. And he then says that he's not worthy even to be called an apostle because he was killing Christians to begin. You know, Stephen, who is called him the first martyr, you know, the fellow who was holding the, 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 the men that, that grabbed the stones to, to throw and kill Stephen, the first, the first person who, who is recorded as dying for Jesus, um, you know who was holding their clothes? Who was holding their, um, their, their jackets? It was Paul. He was there consenting to everything. And he was on, on his way to Damascus to hunt more Christians down. So they would be stoned as well. And he says, I'm not even worthy to be called a Christian. I'm not worthy to be called an apostle here. He says, but you know what? God gave me grace. And that grace has allowed me to actually serve him. Paul was changed in a moment. And Paul says, I didn't resist God's grace. What God bestowed upon him, he said, I accept it. I believe and I was willing to, to use for his glory. He accepted what God had called him to do, and therefore the grace empowered him to fill his commission. By the way, we're sitting here today because he, he received that grace of God, not in vain. You see, it was the Apostle Paul who reached the Gentile world. I don't know if there's any Jews. Any Jews in here? No? No, well, you're all Gentiles then. Well, we have, we have a lot of that to thank for Paul. Because Paul is the one who was the primary mover of the gospel to the Gentile world. And he did that by receiving the grace of God and said, you know what, God? You want to call me to do this, this thing? Actually, you know what's interesting about Paul? When God calls Paul, when Jesus calls Paul, he says, you know what? I'm going to show you how much you're going to suffer for me. Imagine that as a job description. <laughs> Paul, you're going to come follow me. And Paul goes, who are you, Lord? He goes, I'm Jesus, who you're, trying to per who you're persecuting. He goes, what do you want me to do? He goes, yeah, I want you to go to, go to Damascus. I want you to uh, catch up with a guy over there. But you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to prove to you how much you're going to suffer when you follow me. If someone came to me with that job description, <laughs> um, you'd be thinking twice. And Paul suffered probably more than, than most of the other apostles. When you think of it, the Bible says he was whipped stoned he was in multiple shipwrecks he was he was he, the stuff he went through was extraordinary but he stayed faithful to the end he fulfilled whatever whatever he had to go through um god gave him the grace to work through it you know living by grace is an essential part of being a christian paul is a wonderful example of that there will come times in our lives uh, maybe even on a daily basis that the lord allows our test our faith to be tested but every test, every persecution, every trial, every problem that you go through is an opportunity for you to grow in the Lord. You see, I see, and I've shared this with most of you who know me, faith is like a muscle. Faith is like your muscles, right? If you don't use your muscles, what happens to them? 
shrink. They shrink. Muscles get bigger by resistance. If there's no resistance to a muscle, it doesn't grow. How does our faith grow? By resistance. If you avoid, and most of us who are who are you know heavily into the the weightlifting and the uh, and the um, the health scene, right? Um, understand, understand that you have to get yourself out of bed. You have to move. You have to be willing to experience pain to grow, right? That's true for your faith. If you if you avoid every opportunity to suffer pain, to be humiliated, to suffer persecution, to not follow where God wants you to go, oh, you'll still be saved, but you'll be a very, very weak Christian. So God says, I give you grace. Every time I call you to do something, I'm going to give you the grace, that's the, the, the ability to actually, the power that you need to actually do it. And so for us, there's a huge lesson in that. There will come time in our lives when God's testing your faith. And the question is whether you're happy to go through that or whether you're going to try and avoid it each time. And I liken it to sharing the gospel. Sharing the gospel is not, not an easy thing sometimes. Huh? You know, when you, you might be sitting at a table and maybe there's a prompt that comes to your mind and, you know, you, you've heard someone talking about the Bible, maybe on another table. And all of a sudden your ears prick up. <laughs> and you, you, you begin to sort of, you know, you're eating your food and you, you're sort of doing this sort of business. Um, the question is, if God's telling you to go and talk to that person, and that's the open door that he's given you, the question is whether you're going to walk through it. Because sometimes fear, we allow our fear to overcome us. But when you walk through that door, God gives you the grace that you need to be a witness for that person. And it's the same thing in, in every area of our lives. In its crucial times, that God extends his grace to you. And you can either choose to reject that grace and resist God's will at that point, or you can glorify the Lord and grow in his grace. So turn to 2 Peter with me just for a moment. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. Because the Apostle Peter said, this is what our, the goal is for us as believers. Look at what the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter says in 2 Peter 3.18. He says, But grow in grace, and in the knowledge of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, to him be glory both now and forever. God's purpose for you as a believer. Now, we, 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 we talk about being born again. Is anyone ever born an adult? No, not that I know of. No one's ever born an adult. Okay, You're born as a baby, right? And as a baby, you're called to grow. In order to grow, you have to eat, okay? So this is the, the call to us. To God wants us to grow and to mature. Now, a, a baby doesn't necessarily exert a lot of, do a lot of work, right? But as the baby matures, as the baby grows to a child and to a teenager and then to an adult, it gets stronger and stronger and is able to do more things. That's what God wants us to do. He wants us, this is the same way we grew physically. God has a plan for you as a believer, as a born-again believer, to grow spiritually. 
And so Peter says here to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's not just in your head, but in your heart. You know, the more you follow Jesus, the more you know him personally. The more you get to know him, the more you know his heart. And that's what our desire is. You know, there are some of us who have been married for a number of years. And if you've been married for a number of years, um, you get to know your partner more and more and more as the years go on, right? And you can even get to the point where your partner may look a certain way or may act a certain way and you already know what they're thinking in their mind. Would you say that's true? Well, as you already know, your husband's completely, you probably haven't worked out the first week. But for men, it takes a little bit longer to understand the women, right? So, but you know already by a look, by their demeanour, by whatever it is, you know already what they're thinking, what they're feeling. And this is the thing about getting to know someone personally. That's what God wants us to know about Jesus. He wants us to get to a point where we already know exactly what his heart is like, what he wants from us. And so the more we do that, the more we grow as believers. You know someone more and more personally, the more you interact with them. And so in 1 Corinthians 15 11, Paul says, you know, whether it's them preaching or whether it was I preaching, you, um, we preach then you believe. So preaching leads to people believing the gospel. Preaching has been and will always be, until Jesus comes back in glory, the means through which people come to a knowledge of the gospel. And that's why the scriptures tell us in Romans 10, 15, it says, How shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace to bring glad tidings of good things. It's through preaching people hear the gospel, right? Now, preaching is not confined to someone standing behind a pulpit on a Sunday morning being recorded on YouTube um, and wearing a suit. That's not what preaching is confined to. It's not someone standing on a soapbox in the middle of the city, in the city square and, and preaching you know, out loud. That's not what, that's what preaching is. It's part of it, but preaching is anything that is declaring the truth of God to other people. So God wants us to preach, to go out into this world and to share the truth that's changed our lives. Whether it's behind a pulpit or behind your desk at work, whether it's at a dinner table with your family, whether it's on a park bench with a friend, God wants us to share the gospel, to share the truth with people around us because the world is in darkness and the grace of God can change a person's life forever. And as my dear uh, brother Morris pointed out, hello Morris if you're listening to us today. Um, Morris found that there are two scriptures that, that speak about how beautiful the feet are of them that, that, that preach the gospel, that bring good tidings. He actually found that in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 15, he said, and that your feet would be shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. You see, sharing the gospel takes preparation. We should know it. We should know what the scriptures are that speak about it. So when it comes time to sharing it, the spirit can bring those things back to our remembrance. So it's not only the feet that just go out there willy-nilly and saying anything. No, no, there's a preparation that comes with it. So we should always be prepared to share the gospel with people around us. But let's go to the bad side now of this particular passage in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 15. There's a heresy floating around the church of Corinth. 
and Paul had some pretty bad concerns about it. He says in verse 12, Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? So Paul's saying, well, how can, that, how can you actually be teaching there's no resurrection, that we're not resurrected? He's getting to the real heart of the problem. And this is the very thing that was the root cause of some Corinthians having a weak in faith. That there were some people in that church who were going around saying there is no resurrection. You know what? You know when you die, you just go to the other side. Okay? Maybe they were saying, maybe they were saying you only just exist then as a spiritual being, as a spirit being. But then again, most religions believe it, don't they? Most religions believe in just a spiritual world and a physical world. And so when you die, you leave the physical world and you just step across to the spiritual world, right? Christianity doesn't say that. Christianity says that we were actually created with physical bodies. And so for us to be disembodied, okay, and to exist only in a spiritual sense, like a soul and a spirit, the Bible says it's not our natural state. That's why, that's why Christianity speaks about a resurrection, a day when we get new bodies, okay, like Jesus' body. You know, he could just do anything with them. And that's what we have to look forward to. We were created tripartite beings. We were not created to be disembodied spirits. And so even though we die, the Bible, when we die, the Bible says we are with the Lord, the Bible says we weren't, we weren't created to stay like that. We're not angels. We're not spirits. We weren't created ghosts. We were created human beings. And so Paul's saying, what are you guys talking about? There has to be a resurrection. There has to be a body. Jesus rose physically, despite all the wounds and things that he went through. That's the, that's the same for us. Yet some had missed the point completely and were saying that there was no resurrection. They might have argued, how can God resurrect someone that's been totally burnt up to a crisp? Maybe they were thinking about, you know, there has to be like a full intact body for God to be able to resurrect them. Or maybe someone who's been eaten by sharks, how does God resurrect someone like that? But they're foolish questions, really. Because God created the universe by speaking it into existence. He can give you a man, new body, even if we've been eaten by sharks and digested. So that was saying that we we just stay ghosts. And there was a, there was a false teaching in the uh, in the in the church, not in the church. It was um, there was a particular group that was infiltrating the church in the early, in the early church, trying to to get a foothold in there. That was saying that everything physical is evil, right? And everything physical was evil, and only the spiritual was was okay. I suppose in a sense it's slightly true, but it's not. You see, Jesus was physical. He was fully physical. He was spiritual as well, but he was fully physical, and he was there was no, no sin in him. So the Bible tells us that we must be risen physically, and Jesus rose physically. Because he says here in verse 14, if Christ be not risen, then our preaching then is our preaching vain. A waste of time. And your faith is also a waste of time. We're wasting our time. I'm wasting my time standing here talking to you today. We're wasting our time getting all dressed up to come to church on a Sunday morning if Jesus didn't rise from the grave physically. Because if he didn't rise from the grave physically, we are wasting our time here. We might as well be having a game of golf or watching Carlton lose again. 
And he says that not only is not only is our preaching a waste of time, your faith is a waste of time. If Jesus did not think of this, if Jesus did not rise again physically from the grave, you are wasting your time reading the Bible, praying, doing everything that we do. But it gets worse. Look in 15. He says, yay, not only is it a waste of time, he says, yay, and we are found false witnesses of God, liars, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then he is not Christ raised. We are false. We are liars. Not only is it a waste of time, but it's worse than that. Because if there is a God that exists, then we're going around talking rubbish. We're going around telling people lies and we're leading him into a false conclusion which ultimately may have eternal consequences. Does that make sense to everyone? We're liars. There's no greater lie, really, when you look, if there's an eternal life after this, there's no greater lie to tell the spiritual lie. Because it has eternal consequences. <coughs> Sobering thought, if you think about it, Imagine going around teaching, living and declaring lies about God and then having to face a judgment about it. You better make sure you get your, your story correct from the first time. But now think about all the religions in the world. Think about all of them. How many lies are being told about God? You see, there are many more different religions in the world telling completely different stories about Christ and about God than just us. There's a plethora of these things. And if there is a God, then teaching lies about God will have eternally bad consequences for you. You'd better get it right the first time, as I've said. Yet, we live in a culture and an age, and I don't think it's just true of us, but it's been true of all time, that people are so flippant about religion. They're so flippant about that which might be that which is spiritual. That the most common teaching of our day, now get this, this is the most common teaching about spiritual, spirituality and religion in our world, is that everyone's truth is their own. And everyone's truth is valid. Have a think about that just for a moment. The reason that you and I are dissuaded from talking about religion is because they don't want you to get into an argument with people. Right? They think that if everyone starts talking about their religion, there's going to be arguments everywhere. So what they say is, you know, everyone's truth is valid. Your truth is valid. My truth is valid. His, her truth is valid. His truth is valid. They're all valid. Everyone has their own truth. Now, just think about that for a moment. First of all, how can two conflicting things be true? They can't. So just take two of those conflicting thoughts and you're actually, you're already in a, in a, in a, a bad place. How can the gospel that teaches that the Son of God died on a cross and rose again on the third day be equally as valid as a Muslim who teaches that God never had a son and that Jesus did not die on a cross and that Jesus did not die for the sins of the world and that he did not rise on the third day? Can both be true? No. I'm not just singling out Muslims, but it's the same for every religion. If people play around with spiritual truths as if they're unimportant, it's, it's almost like people say, you know, having your religion is pretty much the same as following a football team. Huh? doesn't matter whether I go for Carlton or Richmond or whatever else it is, or you follow a particular tennis player or that tennis player, or if you have a particular hobby, you know what? You know what? doesn't really matter, does it? But have to think about that. 
Think about what the argument is, that there is no spiritual truth. No spiritual truth. It's only your opinion. The modern world has reduced the importance of the spiritual truth, which has eternal consequences, by the way, not just temporal consequences, but eternal, with personal preferences. I'll be honest with you, this is the height of stupidity. The absolute height of stupidity, and people are living in this stupidity all of their lives. It's either stupid or madness or both. And I think it's both. The devil has played this particular hand very, very well. When people say to you, oh, your opinion is yours, they're, they're singing the same tune the devil wants them to sing. And the majority of the world is in that state of blindness. So verse 17 tells us, if Christ be not raised, your faith is in vain. Ye are yet in your sins. You're still a sinner going to hell. We claim that the blood that Jesus shed on the cross cleanses us from all sin. But if that's not true, if he didn't rise again from the grave, then God didn't accept the sacrifice. He isn't who he said he was. And we have to pay for our own sins. I don't know about you, but I don't want to pay for my own sins. And what makes it worse is verse 18. He also says, Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. That means no hope. You're going to have no hope to see your loved ones or other believers in heaven either. That the ones who have died believing in Christ are gone. No hope for them. It's all over. They may be nowhere or they may be in hell because they've believed the wrong thing. And verse 19 says, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, then we are the all of all men most miserable. You know, hope in Christ, hope in Christ, epitomizes the life of a Christian. This is what separates a, a true Christian from a religious person. Okay, A religious person is concerned about the way you do things, the rules and regulations you have to follow, you know, following this tradition or that tradition. Someone who's a Christian, their, their life revolves around hope in Christ. Not hope in a religious denomination, not hope in anyone else or anything else, but hope in Christ. No hope in a pastor of a church, not hope in a pope, not hope in a saint, not hope in anything else but a hope in Christ. And if that hope is proven to be unfounded, then we are the most miserable people, Paul says, on the planet. If someone were to prove today that Jesus did not rise from the grave, if they all they have to do is find a grave, find a, 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 a sepulchre or something like that, that says Jesus, the son of Mary and Joseph, the son of blah, 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 blah. And if his bones are still in there, they're proven Christianity completely wrong. And you and, God, you and I cannot worry about having too many people sitting in a church. Because we'll be doing something else on Sundays. Miserable. Not only miserable, but all those martyrs that died believing. Gone. But we have much to be confident in. The testimony of the apostles and other men of faith to the resurrection of Jesus Christ are proof that he did rise again from the grave. And for those of you who have met him, you know he's alive. 
For those of you who has changed your heart and is actually involved in your life, you know he's alive. Just as the apostles were transformed from being fearful people to being confident and bold, the same has happened to us. Peter went from being a denier to a bold confessor. Even in the face of, of, of threats and imprisonment and beatings, Peter boldly proclaimed the truth and he died for what he believed in. Thomas went from, he's called Doubting Thomas, he went from not believing that Jesus really had risen from the grave you know, to someone who also gave his life and was an evangelist in Persia. What happened to him? He saw Jesus. Paul went from a church, a church persecutor to a church planter. And he died for what he believed in Rome. There is no greater testimony in all of ancient history than the testimony given concerning the resurrection of Jesus. It's one of the most provable historical events in all of history. You know, there is more information both in the Bible and outside of the Bible to prove that who Jesus was, that he died on the cross and that he rose in the third day. There is more evidence of that historically than for Alexander the Great and all the other people in history. And people have no doubt there was no Alexander the Great, do they? They see the result of what he did. And by the time Jesus uh, was born into this world, most of the world was speaking in what language? Greek. That's why the Bible was written, the New Testament was written in Greek. It was the common language of the day, right? So people don't doubt that, that um, Alexander the Great conquered the world and the Greek language spread throughout the entire world. But do you know what proves also that Jesus actually rose again that third day? The fact that you and I are here and that our lives have been changed. And we speak a language that we couldn't speak before. We see things that we couldn't see before. Our eyes have been opened. Our ears have been opened. Our hearts have been affected and changed. And we know that he is living today. If you've experienced the forgiveness of sins that comes from a risen Jesus, then live it. Live life as if every day counts. Redeem the time because the days are very short. Live for Jesus as much as you can because soon enough you're going to be seeing him face to face. For those of you who don't know if you're saved, who don't know the gospel, who aren't sure, well, my counsel to you would be to make sure. Make sure that you are saved. Yes, you can make sure that you're saved. And you know what? The Bible says that once you receive salvation as a gift, you will never ever lose it. You can't lose it. No one can take it away from you. Not devil, not man, not even yourself. Because something happens in an eternal way that locks you into that position and saves you forevermore. And it's no longer by your efforts, but by what God has done for you. And so verse 20 finishes with, But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. You know, Christ is the first fruits. There was a, uh, there was a, uh, a, a tradition of getting the first fruits and giving them to God first, right? That was offered as a sacrifice. When you went to, went to uh, collect your fruit from your fields, you'd give the first portion to God and you'd say, God, the best is for you first. The best went first. Jesus rose again from the grave first. And we are following So God bless you all. And I hope you have a blessed day today. Thank you very much. We're going to do some more.